The assault on our democratic rights within the United States is growing. And after overturning Roe, the right wing of the U.S. ruling class, using the Supreme Court and other undemocratic institutions, will seek to eviscerate or end other hard-fought economic, social, and political rights that have been achieved in past decades. This will be an epic struggle. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this episode of The Socialist Program. I'm Nicole Roussel, a producer of the show, here with host Brian Becker. If you enjoy or rely on this show or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show on patreon.com slash The Socialist Program. Today, we continue our conversation from last week on the period we're currently in, which we believe will be a significant one for the limited democratic rights that we have in this country. Brian, you've been talking and writing about the U.S. domestic political situation in a series of presentations recently, and they've been based on a new piece you wrote called The Counter-Revolutionary Assault on Democratic Rights and Democracy. We started talking about this last week, and just for our listeners to know, this document will be available for the public soon. And this document is based on a speech that you made to the Fifth Party Congress of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. I want to start today with a section of the document. It's a really important analysis. I'm going to read from the document and ask you about it. So it starts, quote, The right wing of the capitalists is highly organized. It's well-funded from corporate America. It has a large network of think tanks and political operatives. It's been systemically organizing for the last four decades, mainly in the background. Bourgeois liberalism does not have a commensurate political agenda for how to change the U.S. political system to answer the country's deep social problems or to overcome its own structural issues, including gridlock and polarization at the top, unquote. This is a reflection, Brian, of the divisions within the ruling class. There have been other periods of this kind of intense intra-class political struggle inside the U.S. ruling class. But in the document, you argue that none were, quote, more contentious than the period of 1960 to 1980, the precise period when there was a major expansion of democratic rights and democracy, unquote. So can you start by telling our audience, why is this so important to know and to study? And what does it tell you that this period is so rife with divisions and that it's also when our rights expanded? And I think also add in, you know, any of the international and global factors that were going on at that time and what role those played as well. Sure. Thank you very much, Nicole. When we talk about the period between 1960 and 1980 as being a contentious period of struggle within the capitalist ruling class, between different factions, trends, tendencies within the capitalist ruling class. It's the most intense in the modern era, but it's not certainly the most intense in U.S. history. The most intense, of course, was the secession of big parts of the country after the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860. That election became the catalyst for what we now call the U.S. Civil War, And in that war, which ultimately resulted in the ending of slavery in the United States, not completely, but in the main, as a principal way in which the capitalist ruling class organized labor in North America, that system of 
the enslavement of human beings came to an end. And that war, the Civil War, took the lives of, well, originally, or what we have used as a statistical model for several generations has been about 650,000 people died. But now new estimates based on new assessments of casualties during the war, it's likely that about 750,000 people died in the United States during that period, during the war. Now, that was at a time when the United States was one-tenth the size of the current population. It was about 30 million people. So if you used a commensurate ratio of casualties for the modern times for the United States, say in 2022, if you had 750,000 dead in 1865, that would be about 10 times as many, about 7.5 million dead. So obviously the bloodiest conflict that the U.S. has ever been engaged in was the U.S. Civil War. And that was a consequence of a struggle that took place that started within the capitalist ruling class prompted by the election of Lincoln. There was another contentious, very contentious election in 1876. The Republican Party, which at that time was the party of Lincoln, the party that had been opposed to slavery, the Democrats were the party for slavery. The Republicans lost that election, the popular vote. But through a deal worked out in the back rooms with the Democratic Party, Rutherford Hayes became president of the United States. And in exchange, the Republicans agreed to remove the northern troops from the South who had been occupying the South since the end of the Civil War. And that spelled, of course, the end of the Reconstruction era and the beginning of, not the beginning, but the consecration or consummation would be a better way of putting it of the full rule of the KKK, of police state terror against the black population in the South. That was a consequence of that very important and very divisive election in 1876. But let's go to the modern era. This is the two decades between 1960 and 1980. And I want to talk a little bit about those two decades because, and we discussed this more in this document, You had John F. Kennedy narrowly defeating Richard Nixon in the 1960 election. It was considered one of the closest elections ever. Kennedy won because he won the state of Texas. Yes, Texas was voting Kennedy, not Nixon, but by a very small margin, about 45,000 votes. And there were many allegations of fraud or irregularities in Texas. And Kennedy carried the state of Illinois by 9,000 votes. But Cook County, of course, under the rulership of infamous Mayor Daley, Richard Daley, Kennedy won that that ballot by 450,000 votes. So many, many people made the argument at the time that Daley actually stole the election for Kennedy from Richard Nixon. Okay, so John F. Kennedy is president, but I want to talk about something even more than Kennedy's election. More important was there was a civil rights revolution going on in the United States. It had started really in 1955 with the Montgomery bus boycott. It spread throughout the South. It was leading to clashes all over the South. There was great polarization. And Kennedy was very hated, not because he was a big champion of civil rights, He was a liberal, and most of the liberals at that time were very, you know, they were fence sitters. 
the civil rights movement had to fight against the liberals and the conservatives. I mean, the ruling class, there was no really strong part of the ruling class that was siding with the civil rights movement at that time. As a matter of fact, Kennedy was so cautious that when those four little girls, four young African-American children were blown to bits in the Birmingham bombing, that was a racist attack against a black church in Birmingham. It happened almost two months before Kennedy was assassinated. Kennedy was so cautious, so concerned, so scared that he refused to meet with black and white family members together from Birmingham. He he met with African-American families, but he met with the white families separately. That was the political mood and tenor of the times in 1963. Kennedy was also very opposed to the escalation of the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. He insisted that it would be advisors, not massive troop deployments to Vietnam. He thought the U.S. would be bogged down in a war in Vietnam, a war that could not be won, just as the U.S. could not win the Korean War that started just about 10 years earlier. Kennedy was assassinated. I mean, that's pretty dramatic. And Lyndon Johnson becomes president of the United States and immediately escalates the war in Vietnam. Within a year, a half a million troops are sent to Vietnam. It's a full-scale war. Johnson doesn't make it through his presidency because there was so much polarization in the country that he couldn't win a second term. He announces that he's going to step down and not run for president. Then Robert F. Kennedy is obviously going to become president of the United States, and he's assassinated. And he was assassinated just two months after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And when Dr. King was assassinated on April 4th, 1968, 120 cities in the United States went into rebellion. America was literally on fire. In addition to the killing of the two Kennedys and Martin Luther King, there was, of course, the assassination of Malcolm X. Before that, Medgar Evers. I mean, many, many people from the civil rights movement, including important, significant leaders, had been murdered. But during that time period, the United States and the cities in the United States basically were up in insurrection before Dr. King was killed. On April 4th, 1968, there had been rebellions almost every summer in black communities. In 1964, the same year that the Civil Rights Act was passed, there were rebellions in Rochester, New York, which is where I was. I was a young kid at the time, also in Harlem. A similar rebellion took place in Philadelphia. In 1965, there was the Watts Rebellion. I mean, Watts was huge. In 1966, rebellions in Chicago. In 1967, the ruling class in the United States was shaken to its core by what was called the Long Hot Summer of 1967. There were massive rebellions in Newark, in Detroit, in Atlanta, in Boston, in Buffalo, in Cincinnati, Tampa, Birmingham, Chicago, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, again, New York City, again, Rochester, Toledo, Ohio, and I could go on and on. Thousands of people were arrested in 1967 in the so-called Long Hot Summer. 11,000 were arrested. Many, many, many people were killed. The U.S. cities were basically under martial law. And then you have Johnson stepping down, not able to finish his second term, just like Kennedy wasn't able to finish his first term because he had been assassinated. 
Then the likely winner of the Democratic primary, Robert F. Kennedy, he's gunned down. And Richard Nixon takes office. And then the country basically is exploding into massive protests in the cities. There's the the Black Liberation Movement. There's the youth movement, the women's movement, the beginning of what was at that time called the gay rights movement. It was a period of major social and political upheaval. And Nixon who wins the 1972 election, can't finish his second term because he resigns rather than impeached. And then the president of the United States becomes Gerald Ford and his vice president is Nelson Rockefeller. And who voted for them? Well, that would be no one because Nixon had basically appointed Gerald Ford on the condition that Ford would pardon him. Gerald Ford was a member of the House of Representatives Ford then chooses Nelson Rockefeller, who was the liberal wing of the Republican Party, to be the vice president, and they don't win. Jimmy Carter becomes president of the United States, and he doesn't win re-election. So between 1960 and 1980, not one president in the United States finishes a second term. No incumbent makes it to the finish line for a second term. And you have the country sort of racked by upheaval in the streets, in the communities, in the neighborhoods, on the college campuses, in the high schools. And all of this is reflecting itself in the struggle of different factions and tendencies within the capitalist ruling class. The reason I'm mentioning all of this, Nicole, and why this is kind of central to our basic assessment is that what we've been witnessing the last few years with the 2016 election of Trump and then the efforts by the Democrats to impeach Trump and then the 2020 election where Trump told his supporters, millions of them, that that the only reason he wasn't going to be president was because of fraud, because the Democrats had committed fraud. This period of political volatility from 2016 to today wasn't really the first time in the modern era where we've had real struggle within among the capitalist pillars, the central institutions of the capitalist establishment. And in fact, the point is that between 1960 and 1980, in many ways, it was a government by assassination. By the way, in 1972, the Republicans had a divided vote between Richard Nixon and an even more right-wing candidate. That was Alabama Governor George Wallace, who was running as a third party candidate and getting a lot of support on his ticket of open white supremacy. But he was shot, too. I mean, he didn't die. He was to end up disabled. But in each and every time throughout this whole period, political violence becomes dominant within the political scene in the United States. I want to say all that because we've entered a new period of extreme political volatility, but it's certainly not the first one. That doesn't mean it can't be the worst one, but it's certainly not the first one. So, Brian, there was this big and ongoing struggle and many struggles within the capitalist establishment between 1960 and 1980, like you just described. And you mentioned a couple of the factors about why that was. You know, clearly the the Vietnam War was one of them. The U.S. was losing. There was the rising tide of struggle for civil rights and equality on many different fronts, There were rebellions in many cities across the country and the awakening of young people around the United States demanding change. These were all pressures on the ruling class at the time. And part of your assessment is that the current struggles that are taking place against democratic rights in the United States right now, and even possibly against the current democratic forms of government, are a reflection of another period 
of extreme volatility. So what, in your opinion, are the principal factors that are driving the politics of today? This is a complex issue, and I think it's important not to speak in shorthand, to really try to get a sense of what's causing this extreme division. And again, really extreme, like the Democratic Party told the country after they lost the election in 2016 to Trump, narrowly lost it on the electoral front. I mean, Hillary Clinton won by more than 3 million votes in the popular vote, but because the Democrats only operate within the parameters of accepting the Electoral College as, a, as an absolute given, they acknowledged that they lost the Electoral College narrowly, but they said it was because of Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin in the internet research agency and Facebook ads that have been taken out and Twitter accounts that were robots that were directed by Russia that sowed division in the country. I mean, it turned out to be complete nonsense. It was complete nonsense. It's not what happened. It's not why Trump won. It's not why Hillary Clinton lost. It wasn't because of the Kremlin. There are other factors and they can be and have been, and we have thoroughly discussed them. But the Democrats really convinced their base that Donald Trump was an illegitimate president, not because he was a reactionary, which of course he is, but because he was the president because of electoral interference from the outside. That fell apart, but it convinced many, many, many Democrats that, you know, that it was true. It also meant that maybe the electoral system, which the U.S. had always you know, and always does brag about to other countries in the world, that it was vulnerable to interference, that maybe it wasn't so stable. And then Trump loses in 2020. Again, he lost by a large margin in popular vote. More than 7 million voters voted for Biden and Trump. But he narrowly lost a few states on the Electoral College. And Trump then convinced a big part of his base that the only reason he wasn't president was that the Democrats stole the election. And frankly, of the 73 million people who voted for Trump, probably half of them, or maybe many more than half, actually agreed with Trump that it was a stolen election. And many millions of them supported the January 6th efforts to have Congress overturn or not certify the election outcome. I mean, tens of millions of people agreed that that was a righteous cause. They felt that the evil Democrats had stolen the election from them. So they now believe, the Republican base now believes, and Republican politicians all over the country are saying, they're not necessarily going to accept any future election outcome. And when you have millions of people very closely connected to the leadership of one of the two ruling class parties in the country, ready to make the argument that the system cannot be trusted, that American democracy is basically corrupted, that you must take means or use means outside the legal process, including force, including the use of force to prevent the corruption of elections. That is an incendiary recipe. We could see how incendiary it was on January 6th. I mean, the Congress was attacked by a very you know large crowd of people. They were chanting, hang Mike Pence. If they could have found Mike Pence or Nancy Pelosi or other 
important leaders in the U.S. government, they would have undoubtedly hurt them and maybe even worse. That was extraordinary. And even after Congress was dispersed and the Congress reassembled later that night, 147 Republicans still voted against the certification of the election. So it wasn't an anomaly for the Republican agenda to agree that the cause of the January 6th attack on the Capitol was righteous. So when you have the Democrats and the Republicans both successively in 2016 and then again in 2020 opening the door to the idea that the U.S. system isn't actually one person, one vote, that it's not actually a free and fair election, that it's a corrupted election, it lends itself to those voices who say, well, if the current democratic system that allows for the peaceful transfer of power doesn't actually work, then other means, including means using violence or force, are certainly legitimate. And that in and of itself has created a new and higher degree of volatility. I mean, there are other economic and geostrategic factors behind this instability. One is on the global level, the United States went to war after September 11th. It went to war in Afghanistan. And after 20 years of war and after having spent trillions of dollars, the U.S. was defeated on the battlefield by the Taliban, the same political force that had agreed in November 2001, two months after the U.S. invasion or the NATO invasion, to surrender and to accept amnesty in exchange for laying down their arms. 20 years later, after the U.S. refused that offer of surrender, they're the government. In the case of Iraq, the U.S. went to war in Iraq. Obviously, the whole thing was based on a bunch of lies. Everybody knew at the time, anybody paying attention to Iraq knew that Iraq was not a threat to its neighbors, Iraq was not a global threat, that Iraq was not building weapons of mass destruction, that Iraq was not looking for another conflict. Iraq had been hobbled by 14 years of economic sanctions, the most crippling economic sanctions in human history against a country that had been bombed and devastated by bombing in January, February 1991 when, when the U.S. went to war against Iraq in that period, the first Gulf War. Everybody knew that Iraq posed no threat, but the U.S. went to war against Iraq anyway. And I interviewed Lawrence Wilkerson, who was Colin Powell's chief of staff in the first four years of the Bush administration. And I asked him, why did you invade Iraq? You knew, you obviously knew that Iraq posed no threat, that Iraq didn't have weapons of mass destruction or any of it. And he said to me, we did it because it was low hanging fruit, meaning it was going to be easy. Well, it was easy. It only took three weeks to dislodge Saddam Hussein. But then the U.S. was bogged down in this war in Iraq that the U.S. couldn't win. The resistance of the Iraqi people kept growing and growing and growing. And thousands of American soldiers and contractors died. According to the Lancet Medical Journal, as of 2010, the Lancet Medical Journal is a very prestigious medical journal in the UK. Their estimate was that as many as a million Iraqis died who would not have otherwise died except for the war, meaning they didn't all die from bombs and bullets and missiles. Many died from disease or lack of potable water, etc. They said a million died. We don't know how many Iraqis died, but a lot of Iraqis died. But what was the outcome? 
The U.S. was basically driven from Iraq. The U.S. started paying, literally paying Iraqi resistance fighters not to shoot at American troops. They put them on a stipend. I think it was $300 a month. That was after the so-called surge in 2007. So here's another long, expensive war that the U.S. didn't win. Then the U.S. goes to war along with France and Britain against Libya. And that goes on and on and on. And what's the result? Is it a is it a gold mine for the United States? Is it a new lucrative takeover of a resource-rich, oil-rich North African country? No. Libya is a complete mess. And while the U.S. was bogged down in Afghanistan, in Iraq, fighting all of these conflicts in the Middle East, China, which had been allowed to integrate into the world economy by the United States and by Western imperialism, was starting to make gargantuan gains And Russia, which had been hobbled after the overthrow and the collapse of the Soviet Union and the socialist bloc countries at the end of the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s, Russia was getting back on its feet. And Russia was becoming a major power. And Iran, which had been a target of the United States and was supposed to be next in line after Iraq and Afghanistan for destruction, Iran was getting stronger. And on the home front, There was a huge economic crisis, 2008, the biggest economic crisis since the Great Depression. We call it the Great Recession. But 30 million people lost their jobs. Hundreds of thousands of businesses were wiped out. Nine million families were put into foreclosure, and three million actually lost their homes. It was a period of extreme economic devastation, so great, in fact, that something Very remarkable happened, which is the Democratic Party nominated Barack Obama, a black American, a man with a name, Barack Hussein Obama, somebody who nobody would have thought could possibly become president of the United States, given how racist the society is. And Obama wins the presidency. And for a moment, it looked like maybe Obama would sort of restore the image of the United States, sort of reach out to the third world, calm things down a little bit, not be so bogged down in endless wars. He even early in his administration said, let's pivot to Asia, meaning let's get out of the Middle East and endless war and start to focus on our real geostrategic rivals like China. At first, it looked like Obama would have you know, a settling impact on the fortunes of U.S. imperialism, which had become destabilized based on both military hubris, interventions, occupations, endless war, and by this massive financial crisis. But immediately, the right wing in America started organizing against Obama. And we can all remember, I think, those of us who are old enough, that when Obama started to propose that there should be a new health care system to help the uninsured get health care, he didn't offer Medicare for all, which was very popular but was considered too liberal. He took a very conservative solution called the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, as it's called, which was basically the same program Mitt Romney, the Republican Mitt Romney instituted in the state of Massachusetts when he was Republican governor. When Obama did that, the right wing started mobilizing. The Tea Party was formed and armed gangs and militias started showing up at town hall meetings and denouncing Obama as a communist and And the Affordable Care Act was an expression of socialism. And all of that started to 
create a revival in right-wing politics. On the left, there was also something of a revival. It was spontaneous. It was uncertain. It came in fits and starts. There was the Occupy movement in 2011. There was the massive protests in Wisconsin that led to the occupation of the Wisconsin state capitol. There was, in 2014, after the murder of Mike Brown, the uprising of Black America, once again, the Black Lives Matter movement, the next iteration, the next generation of struggle for Black liberation. There was then the Bernie Sanders movement, and millions of young people started coming out for socialism. And then this event in 2016, where Donald Trump becomes president of the United States, and the right wing that had started to organize and come out of the racist gutter that it had been put into by the the mass uprisings of the 1950s and especially the 1960s, this right wing started to regather and gain steam. And then Trump wins, and suddenly the whole political apple cart is turned upside down. And the right wing in the ruling class, like the Federalist Society, which was trying to stack federal courts, or ALEC, which was a business organization that was basically writing the laws of reactionary state legislatures and using, along with right-wingers, gerrymandering techniques to diminish the impact and power of the black vote, the impact of labor, the impact of the environmental movement. ALEC, the Federalist Society, these organizations that had been functioning in the background, trying to sort of chip away at the expansion of democratic rights and economic rights and social rights that had been achieved in the 1960s, they now had a mass base because now millions of people came out to support Trump. And what did Trump do? He started his campaign by saying the people coming from Mexico are rapists. He started to use the most racist, vile language against people from Latin America, against the Caribbean countries, against black Americans, against all of those who had been fighting for social justice in the last years. And suddenly it was kind of all right again, after having been not all right for several decades, to be openly reactionary, openly racist. And under those circumstances, and in that context, you look at all of those things on the left, things on the right, the economic crisis, the decline of the U.S. empire globally because of its hubris and endless war in the Middle East. You have all of that. And then in 2020, George Floyd is killed, and there's this uprising against racism, and 25 to 35 million people come into the streets, black and white and Latino and Asian and Arab American, and and they're calling for defund the police, and city councils are starting to go on record against funding for the police, and Confederate monuments are being taken down. I mean, this like gigantic, also unexpected development politically adds another strain. And after that, after that movement subsides, and after this narrowly, after Trump is narrowly defeated, he calls this now reinvigorated mass right-wing base into the streets. So we had fascists dominating the streets in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, the Proud Boys. They were on a rampage all over the place. Right-wing forces were coming out. They were organizing. And Trump said, come to Washington, and January 6th is going to be wild. And he directs them to march on the Capitol while it's sitting to certify uh, 
the electoral outcome, meaning basically a pro forma ceremonial certification of the electoral college outcome, and they disperse Congress. I mean, when you look at this whole period, you can't but come to the conclusion that everything is very, very, very tenuous. And the clashes on the street, the clashes in the boardrooms, the clashes in Congress, all of it is a sign of extreme volatility. But the point that I think is most important is that the right wing, by getting rid of abortion rights, which was not only a right, but a popular right, and it was done by six individuals, six rich lawyers in the Supreme Court, could he get away with eviscerating that right? The right wing now thinks, look, we can't really win popular votes anymore in the national election because even Trump, who got more votes than any other Republican ever, still lost by 7 million votes. The country is too urban. It's too young. The black and Latino community too big. We can't win the popular vote anymore. We have to continue our drive to get rid of abortion rights and other social rights. And we talked, Nicole, about how abortion was really just a wedge issue chosen by the right wing. Nobody, the right wing didn't give a damn about abortion when the anti-abortion movement started. It was a counter-organizing tactic at that time. And we can talk about why they chose abortion. But having succeeded 50 years later at eviscerating this popular right, we believe that the right wing of the ruling class now feels gridlock in Congress, all of this volatility, the United States is coming undone. The only way it can sort of, you can put Humpty Dumpty back together again is to have a firm hand, to have a change, a basic change in the way the democratic system works. And what we need to do is to be able to have a right-wing government under a leader like Trump who can, by virtue of his strong leadership, actually end the gridlock, end the volatility, impose a severe defeat on the black community, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the LGBTQ community, the labor movement, impose a severe defeat on them such that the government can become streamlined and start to work again as it should have been for the you know unobstructed, undiluted benefit of capital. And the social and democratic and economic rights that were won by struggle in the 1960s became and are considered to be an obstacle to the full domination of society by capital. And that's the real goal of the right wing is to have a right wing government at the state level and at the federal level. And all of the rights that we thought we won in the 30s, the 50s, the 60s, if they're not in the original constitution or its attendant amendments, and this is the core of Alito's opinion in the Dobbs decision ending abortion, if those rights are not ensconced in the constitution, if they're not enshrined in the constitution and or its amendments, then they're up for grabs. And that's what I think is coming. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Let's talk about what the Dobbs decision did and you know what it said. And then let's talk also about some other court cases that are relevant and that are coming up that we know are going to be very, very important around some of the things you were just talking about. You write in the document that you know the Dobbs decision is a turning point. And you write, quote, 
that it's the trigger for a larger effort to reverse civil rights, voting rights, the rights that were achieved by the African-American people's struggle, workers' rights, marriage equality, and other key achievements of the LGBTQ community. The right wing of the ruling class believes that with their success in eliminating abortion as a legal right, they can move forward rapidly while they have momentum to reverse the other achievements that were accumulated by the working class and oppressed communities starting in the mid-1930s. And you go on to write, the overturning of Roe shows that it would be a major error to think that the rights secured decades ago under capitalism are permanently protected and that we're therefore past the stage of fighting for democracy. I mean, this is huge. This is what you're outlining right now. And so let's talk about some of these other court cases, you know, what we might be seeing in the next year or so. I mean, the West Virginia emissions case that came down last term from the Supreme Court was also related to this. Essentially, it said that the Supreme Court ruled that the Environmental Protection Agency, which you can hear in its name what it's supposed to do, was not allowed to regulate any emissions from certain industry. I mean, that is, again, this right that people have to be able to breathe freely. There's also a really relevant case that I hope you can shed some light on. It's a really anti-labor case called Lochner v. New York that's relevant here. And then I think maybe most importantly, if you can talk about the case called Moore v. Harper, it's a case out of North Carolina. And it essentially, if the Supreme Court decides to go and, you know, if the ruling class essentially is pushing the court to do this, to decide to uphold the case of Moore v. Harper, essentially it means a state legislature could just overturn federal election results decided by popular vote. So essentially the things that Trump was pushing Pence to do about the 2020 election to overturn it, Moore v. Harper, you know, could make that quote unquote legal, whatever legal means. So let's talk a little bit more about some of these cases and, and what might be coming. Right. So the the West Virginia emissions case, again, the Supreme Court rules that the Environmental Protection Agency went beyond its authority because it doesn't have the right to determine whether particular industries emit certain amounts of pollutants or carbons or not. In other words, it violates the basic right, the rights of contract to interfere in the rights of contract. And this, again, is the Supreme Court saying anything that obstructs or limits the rights of capital, the rights of private property, unless it's already been you know, enshrined in the Constitution, if you thought the environmental movement won these abilities to have clean water and clean air and to regulate industry, regulate capitalism through government intervention, think again. The Moore case is something that we have to really, really look at. And I want to talk a little bit about it because the Supreme Court has decided to bring the Moore versus Harper case in the next term. So they will make some kind of ruling about it. And I want to spend a little bit of time about why this is important. This is, I believe, a pivotal legal argument, and it's somewhat complex but it has huge implications. It talks about or goes to the independent state legislature theory that the right wing is now advancing. This appeared as a somewhat fringe theory a couple of years ago when Trump's lawyers first advanced it, but like so much else, it's received a larger adoption in the Republican Party and is now, as I said, coming before the Supreme Court. Again, for a case to come before the Supreme Court, 
four justices have to agree to bring it to the Supreme Court. Trump and his army of right-wing operatives argued that the state legislatures, this was their argument, one of their key arguments about the 2020 election, they argued that the state legislatures dominated by the Republican Party could determine which group of electors would be sent to the Electoral College. They cited the presidential electors clause in the U.S. Constitution, which reads, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. In this reading of the Constitution and in its subsequent interpretations by the racists and reactionaries, again, an interpretation that's being used to gerrymander, that is, undemocratically mute or diminish black political power and that of other oppressed communities and skew state elections such that state legislatures become bastions of right-wing political power. Under this interpretation, the state legislature's decisions related to the federal elections cannot be challenged or overturned by the governor of a state or by the state Supreme Court or by the state constitution, and not by the federal government. I want to read a little bit for our audience an explanation of the independent state legislature theory that was presented by the Brennan Center a little while ago, a couple, I think it was in the last year. The Brennan Center is a liberal, not radical think tank in Washington. It wrote, quote, There's a thread that links the partisan gerrymandering of congressional maps in North Carolina, attempts to dissolve the Wisconsin Election Commission, and efforts to overthrow the 2020 presidential election in Pennsylvania and elsewhere. In each case, the participants have invoked a dubious interpretation of the Constitution called the Independent State Legislature Theory. Long relegated, I'm still quoting from the Brennan Center, long relegated to the fringe of election law, the theory will soon be front and center before the Supreme Court. Okay, so this was written a few months ago, which has agreed to hear a case concerning the North Carolina congressional maps in this fall Supreme Court session. And if it were to adopt the theory, it would radically change our elections radically change our elections. Now, I want people to kind of stick with this. This is the case, Moore versus Harper. The independent state legislature theory is, in fact, at the heart of the case. The North Carolina Supreme Court ruled that the Republican-controlled state legislature's redistricting scheme was unconstitutional because it rigged the elections to the advantage of the Republicans in the state of North Carolina. Now, they're saying, why would they take this case? The state Supreme Court in North Carolina said, look, what the Republicans did was obviously discriminatory. It's obviously done and designed to make sure that the Republicans win. So it's an abridgment, an infringement, an obstruction of democracy. Why would the Supreme Court take this case unless it wanted to discuss the merits of the argument advanced by the state legislature in North Carolina 
that only the state legislature, not the governor, not the state Supreme Court, and not the state constitution determines how elections are run, how they're organized, or how they're determined in terms of their outcome. In other words, all authority is vested in the state legislature, which is already dominated by the Republicans, as is the case in 30 states around the country. Four of the nine Supreme Court justices in the sitting Supreme Court have already endorsed some version of the independent state legislature theory. These are all the people who have been handpicked by the Federalist Society over the years. And the Federalist Society has packed the federal courts, the district courts, the Court of Appeals, and the Supreme Court. Neil Gorsuch, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Brett Kavanaugh, they have all endorsed at least some version of the independent state legislature theory about who has final say over elections. This means that Trump's last appointee, that's four of the right-wingers, are already on record supporting some version of the independent state legislature theory. That means Trump's last appointee to the bench, Amy Coney Barrett, who was a Republican operative during the Bush versus Gore campaign to undo the election in 2000, the election that George W. Bush lost, but actually won because the Supreme Court by a five to four majority gave the election to Bush by not counting more votes in the state of Florida. She was there as a Republican operative. So was Brett Kavanaugh, by the way. She was there as a Republican hack. She's the next vote. She's the last appointee by Trump. She could be the deciding vote on whether the state independent state legislature theory has merit. Gorsuch upheld the theory in a 2020 concurring opinion on the Wisconsin election case regarding the deadline for mail-in ballots. He wrote, quote, the Constitution provides that state legislatures, not federal judges, not state judges, not state governors, not other state officials, bear primary responsibility for setting election rules. That's Gorsuch. He's already said that in a concurring opinion. So we have before us, Nicole, a new case that I do not believe would have been undertaken by this right-wing Supreme Court if they did not intend to say something favorable or even endorse, embrace, or uphold the independent state legislature theory. Now, the implications of this are very, very, very wide and profound. If this theory were to become the operational law, it would mean that it's not necessarily one person, one vote in a particular state that determines how that slate of electors is chosen. If all power resides in the state legislature, and let's say there's a dispute about the election outcome, then according to the independent state legislature theory, it's up to the state legislature to determine which slate of electors is actually valid and then goes forward to represent the state in the electoral college certification. So you can see, and as you can see right now, many Trump operatives and Republican operatives who are running for secretary of state in different states, running for governor, running in all kinds of statewide positions, are making the argument that they might not necessarily accept the election outcome. They do embrace the independent state legislature theory. 
they would be more than willing to say if the state legislature, say, in Georgia or Arizona or Pennsylvania where, or some state where the Republicans are dominating the state legislature, where they could say, look, some of these votes are based on fraud, et cetera, et cetera. We're not going to accept the election outcome. It's not Fox News or CNN. We determine who won this election. You can see how this could easily overcome the disadvantage, the inherent, now inherent disadvantage that the Republicans have and that the right wing has when it comes to federal elections because the Republicans can't win the popular vote. And more and more of the red states are becoming purple and will eventually be blue. And again, it wasn't so long ago that West Virginia was voting Democratic. And as I mentioned in the beginning, in 1960, Texas voted for a Kennedy. If it looks to the right wing like the popular demographic constellation in the United States is so unfavorable to accepting right wing outcomes, they're prepared to use undemocratic means and skew or change the way elections are organized to satisfy what their real goals are. Their goals are not democracy. If they say that they're constitutional originalists, there's nothing in the U.S. Constitution that mentions democracy. Again, as we've talked about in the past and in past episodes, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that the country is a democracy. It says it's a republic and the right to vote, the right to a franchise is very, very limited in the U.S. Constitution. Only white men with property in the U.S. Constitution get the right to vote. White men without property win the right to vote in 1828. Women only win the right to vote in the 20th century. Black people in America are basically unable to vote really until the 1965 Voting Rights Act because either big parts of the population are considered property, not citizens, and enslaved people, or after the end of slavery and after the violent destruction of Reconstruction and the use of all sorts of means by which to deprive Black people, especially in the South, where the Black majority lived, of the right to vote. On that basis, this whole history is without you know, core elements of what we consider to be sort of the basic definition of democracy. And the right wing wants to go back to that. They're now upholding the idea that this isn't a democracy. It's a republic. It's a particular kind of republic. And what's sacred is not the right of everyone to vote, certainly, because that's now dangerous. What's sacred is the right of capital, the right of private property to dominate in all areas. And in order to have that happen, they have to get rid of the 30s, meaning the democratic reforms of the 30s, the right of labor to organize, to have unions. They have to get rid of the civil rights legislation that said government has an obligation or a requirement to impose equality restrictions on capital, where before capital could discriminate against whoever it wanted to discriminate against. The idea even of minimum wage, you know, the Supreme Court, you mentioned the Lochner ruling that was in 1905 that said the government didn't have a right to regulate how many hours bakery workers, women bakery workers in New York work because that was between their employer and them. That was the sacredness of the contract, the labor contract between the two of them. Government could not intervene and say you had to limit the workday. Minimum wage only becomes a thing in 1937 when the Supreme Court, by a five to four margin, 
rules in the parish decision that the state of California has the right to interfere in a labor contract by imposing a minimum wage on employers. So I believe what the right wing wants to do is take the country back. But the big obstacle is the demographics. The country is 83% living in urban areas. Most of the urban areas are not favorable to the right wing. The black community is very large. The Latino community, large and growing. And so the solution is, and this is why they became so emboldened after the Dobbs decision, if you can eviscerate abortion rights, a popular right that's even, many polls show that even the majority of Republicans and certainly the majority of Republican women support abortion rights, but they took the right away. They took it away. Now, we shouldn't come to the conclusion like a doom and gloom conclusion. As we can see in the recent months, look at what happened in Kansas. The the decision, the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court is bringing people into political activity. Women are engaged, especially women and older girls who are eligible to vote are registering to vote. People are involved in the, in the Kansas referendum that was successful. It was progressive. There's a referendum coming up in Michigan. Very important. Proposition one is on the ballot in the state of California that would make abortion a constitutional right in California. So I don't want to say this is all going down the drain. I'm saying we are at an inflection point. The right wing of the ruling class, emboldened by the Dobbs decision, emboldened by the evisceration of abortion rights, now intends to use extraordinary legal means, they're really illegal means, but in the the domain of jurisprudence, to find a way to eliminate democracy, democratic forms of government, or anything that stands in the way of the unfettered control and authority over society by private capital. And as they go on this offensive, it becomes an epic struggle, really, because It's up to us. It's up to the people. It's up to the people's movements. It's up to the labor movement and the black movement and the Latino and immigrant rights movement, the women's movement, the LGBTQ movement, the disabled movement. All the movements for social progress have to unite right now, not behind the Democratic Party. That's a lost cause. The Democrats do nothing but surrender. They only want to strengthen the Electoral College. But we need to have a revival of that kind of far-reaching radical movement, that uprising from below, like what happened in the 50s and 60s and earlier in the 30s, in order to turn the tide. Can we do it? Yes, we can. Is it guaranteed that we will do it? No, it's not. It's really, really up to us. I think you're exactly right. Anyone listening, share this with your friends. Talk about this with your colleagues. I mean, this has to be each and every one of us getting involved, joining an organization and you know, not taking this lying down. We all have to get involved and we all have to push back on this. Brian, I want to thank you so much. We're going to continue talking about these issues. You heard Brian really bring in a lot of the other international global issues. You know, we're going to continue to talk more about that as well, because all of this is deeply interconnected. And all of these issues we talked about today going on domestically are impacted too by what's going on in the globe. So we're going to come back to this. Thank you so much. We will be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. 
connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 